Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. Study Sunday. Uh, nice little group here tonight. Um, <clears throat> tonight, um, tonight, tonight's ambitious. I have a lot. I have, I have high expectations for tonight. Um, so should we buckle our seatbelts? I'd buckle up. I would buckle up. In terms of there's like, there's already a map. There's already a map. There's already a timeline. There's already a big word on the board. All right, yeah. Um, so tonight, a new sutra, a whole new genre, a whole new sutra, a whole new world. Uh, ostensibly, we are going to be talking about the Ashtahasarika Pranyaparamita Sutra. But we're really going to be talking about the Pranyaparamita Sutra. Right? But our entry point will be this. <clears throat> 8,000-line version of this sutra called Ashtahasarika, which means actually just 8,000. But before we get into this sutra, let's see, where are you? This one. This is the sutra. Before we get into this sutra, though, I am going to, this is what makes it ambitious tonight, is I'm going to try to uh, clarify a few things about Buddhism Buddhist history, all of that, uh, before we can move into this sutra. Okay, so I'm going to, this is supposed to just be a quick little summary of something. And I say that's just so like we don't get too off track, because we, uh, we, this is where we're, we want to be tonight, all this stuff. But we need to go back for a little quick history lesson in Buddhism, so we know where, and more importantly, when, and even maybe even more importantly, where this, these sutras come from, all right? So we know from all of our past lessons and all that, we know that Buddhism, this movement, whatever you want to call it, a religion, a philosophy, a movement, a way of life, yada, 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 began in this region of what is today called India. Certainly was not called India back then, Although this valley up here was called the Indus, and there was the Indus River and the Indus Valley, and it's from this Indus that the place gets its name. But it wasn't India in the year approximately 500 BC or so. So in this region called Magadha, of what is today India, around 500 BC, there was this movement by started by what we, retrospectively called the Buddha, uh, Siddhartha, Gautama, the sage of the Shakya tribe, the Shakya Muni. <clears throat> there started this movement which could be classified as a meditation movement, of which there were many going on in India at the time. There was Mahavira, the founder of the Jain tradition. If you study Mahavira, you study Jains, you'll be like, isn't this Buddhism? Yeah, it's basically like Buddhism if you read it. It's different if you get into the nitty-gritty, but in terms of it being kind of high-technology meditation tradition, Jainism was right up there. You could read the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, a classic text on yoga and meditation and a whole system of it. Also, 
more or less contemporaneous with the Buddha. So there was this, these movements going on in India around 500 BC or so, all right? And the, the Buddha, Shakyamuni Siddhartha Gautama, his movement it sort of unarguably really took off. Jainism took off, is still around today, but Jainism didn't really make it outside of India at all. Uh, Jains made it outside of India, but Jainism as a tradition, not so much. Uh, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, they didn't make it out of India until basically the 19th century. And so among these Indian meditation traditions, the Buddhist version, the Buddha's version, became very popular. We could get into the historicity of why that is, but more importantly, I want to very quickly just break down what the Buddha's initial system was, because it's actually, in a way, quite tangible, quite understandable. I've mentioned this many times before, that of these meditation traditions, almost all of them were focused on something called shamatha, Shamatha. Calming. Calming meditation. Shamatha, right? And most people associate meditation with shamatha. They might not know the word shamatha, but this idea of calming down. Calming, calming, quieting, stilling. That's all shamatha. And Jainism is all about shamatha. Uh, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali are all about shamatha. Shamatha is sort of the name of the game, calming down. The Buddha, however, sort of systematized a process of calming down. He developed all kinds of techniques to develop initial stages of concentration. And there are many, you could read many other sutras, not these sutras, but other sutras, and learn all about these <coughs> concentration techniques. And these concentration techniques will lead you to something called dhyana. Jhana. Sometimes it's just called jhanas if you're in the Pali system, but the, the better word is to learn or become familiar with is dhyana. So dhyana, of which there were four stages of dhyana, moving deeper into stillness, calmness, peacefulness. Um, and at the fourth level of dhyana, that fourth level is called upeksha. Upeksha. Equanimity. And when you reach this state of absolute equanimity, total equilibrium with inside, outside, total stillness, all of that, you enter into something called a samadhi. Samadhi. Um, so, I mean, samadhi gets translated a lot of different ways. It's usually translated as concentration, even though that's a little misleading because we're actually way past concentration if we're in samadhi. And there are actually, in this Buddhist, original Buddhist system, four samadhis. 
So you're meditated to the point of equilibrium, and then you enter into what's called a samadhi of, of infinite space, and then a samadhi of infinite consciousness, infinite nothingness, until finally you reach this fourth final samadhi, the state of neither perception nor non-perception. <laughs> okay, so this should be, for a lot of folks, this is pretty, we've talked about this a million times, these eight steps, four samadhis, or sorry, four dhyanas, four samadhis, this state of neither perception nor non-perception, in which there is a kind of a memory wipe. There's an idea, in, in not just in Buddhism, in pre-Buddhist traditions, that this, this final samadhi of where you're, you're not, like, quote, conscious, but you're also not unconscious, and you're not, you know, you're not gone, like, just inanimate object, but you're also not a normal functioning conscious self in that way. You're neither perceiving nor not perceiving. So it's not that you're not perceiving, but it's not that you're perceiving either. Right? So it's this either or in between state. Arriving at that state causes this kind of karmic wipe of the mind that in many meditation traditions other than Buddhism, this was the goal. To arrive at that state in which the karmic memory is like white, clean, and then you're just like, you're good. <coughs> that was the idea. Now, you're in Shamatha, you're, you're going to just like sit there like forever in deep, deep meditation, but you're liberated, you're good, you're out, out of suffering, all of that. Everybody follow me? The Buddha came along though, and even though this was the goal, neither state or uh, neither perception or non perception, and even though everybody was talking about dhyanas and samadhis, the Buddha sort of really codified this four samadhis, sorry, four dhyanas, four samadhis program to arrive at total shamatha. All right. However, the Buddha also introduced this whole new idea to the meditation scene, which is called vipassana. insight. So this is what I call a re-engagement of the mind, so not just calming, 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 although you have to be able to calm down to properly do Buddhist insight meditation. You cannot just jump right into insight meditation. So these are often described as two wings of a bird, that you need both of these to fly. So you need to be able to calm down, but you also do this insight you're turning back on the mind and inch, like looking not just internally but externally and everything. And you're arriving at basically, originally in Buddhism, you're arriving at something called pranya, wisdom. And you can think of vipassana in something like uh, the Four Noble Truths. Um, not last Sunday, but two Sundays ago, 
the sutra we did was called the Dharma Chakra Pavartana Sutra, the sutra turning the Dharma wheel, the Buddha's first sutra ever. And in that first teaching of the Buddha, um, he, the main, the heart of that sutra are these four noble truths. The, the Buddha's first teaching, the foundational Buddhist idea, which is like, hey guys, guess what? This whole world we live in is a source of suffering. There's actually no enjoyment to be had here. Even the things you think are enjoyment are fleeting, not lasting, dependent on something else, and you know, ultimately not satisfactory. And so he said, first noble truth, all life is suffering. Second noble truth, that suffering is being caused by clinging, desire, attachment, wanting, craving, desiring. The third noble truth says is that if you don't cling, want, desire, crave, if you don't do that, you won't suffer. So a simple equation according to the Buddha. And the fourth noble truth is the path, the noble eightfold path, which is, well, how do I do that, Buddha? How do I stop wanting, clinging, craving, desire? Follow the noble eightfold path. Boom. But what I want you to see in that is that that understanding of the four noble truths, that's vipassana. It's about seeing the world in, in terms of Buddhism, they would say correctly, samyadrishti, the correct view of reality. The notion being that we have a deluded view of reality. And, and basically the idea is, is that we are projecting out onto the world all of our wants, all of our desires, but we don't know we're doing that. We, we just think the world's just like it is, and so we're going running after all of our wants and desires. So we're on this samsara train of going after all of our wants and desires everywhere all the time, that we're projecting out there. They are not out there to be had, which is why, like the proverbial carrot on the stick, we will just keep going after them all the time. That's called samsara. Oh, oh, oh. Buddha came along and said, guess what? You can stop going around and around and around. You can stop with the anxiety and the suffering if you stop wanting all this stuff, desiring all the time. Boom. Again, the important thing to see here, though, is that this is a way of seeing the world. This is not a prescription for meditation. This, is, don't, this isn't sit cross-legged and breathe three times and all of that. This is how you see the world. So what I mean to say is, in this very quick synopsis of Buddhism, is that from the Buddhist point of view, this is wonderful. The ability to calm down to the point of liberation is a, is a gift and a miracle. So do it, yes. But the idea here, though, is, is that in Buddhism, you could, without knowing any of this stuff about the Four Noble Truths and suffering and all of that, you could just be given a simple breathing technique. And you're sitting there and, oh, oh I, didn't, I, was so, you know, I was so anxious before. My breathing was so erratic and shallow. Oh, oh. And you could just breathe your way into liberation. You could shamathically calm your way practically into nirvana. Practically, okay? But you wouldn't know why. You wouldn't know, you wouldn't know all of this. You would just be calm. And you could then be roused out of your calm state and a, and a, and a little iPhone dangled in front of you and you could be like, ooh, because you don't know. Right? So the Buddha said, no, let's do this both directions. We're going to learn how to calm ourselves down so that we are not worked up over this. 
Stuff's being dangled in our faces and our, ha- our hearts are calm. Stuff's being shown to us all the time, craziness, and we're peaceful and all of that. But then we're going to turn the mind back on and develop a way of seeing reality properly in order to not be fooled by it, in order to not be like caused anxiety by it, and ultimately not to be attached to it. So the Buddha, so in other words, this was a, a way to escape, kind of, and a, an effective way to escape, and a kind of age-old approved way of escaping. And if you just wanted to get out, that would be fine. But the Buddha said, no, but there's this other thing going on that if you can train the mind, it's called mind training in Buddhism, if you can train the mind to see the world differently, you could basically be in this blissed out shamathic state while being, walking around in the world. Hey, how's it going? Hi. But you are still maintaining this shamathic state because you have the wisdom engendered by Vipassana. That makes sense? So that, those are the two arms. Buddhism never strays from this. This is kind of it. But something happens in Buddhism. But does everybody kind of get this initial program? Simple directives. Calm down and think about some stuff. And the Buddha, these sutras, the other sutras, all the sutras, is stuff to think about. Ways of seeing the world. Things to consider that might change the way you see the world. You know? Like, just like this, these Four Noble Truths, hey, guess what, everybody? <laughs> like, this world is a source of suffering. Everything in it is a source of suffering. So, oh, really? And guess what, everybody? That suffering is being caused by uh, all this desire, right? But if you just go like, hey, don't desire, don't get attached, you won't suffer. That's it. Simple. Calm down, and then think about the world. This, are there any questions about that? Please. Please. Uh, Part of the Eightfold Path is right concentration or right mindfulness or right meditation, depending on the right practice. Yep. So is that that a little self-referential there? I mean, I know, I'm not trying to nitpick at this, but Mm -mm. that... no, so within the fourth noble truth, right. which is the eightfold path, right, right, uh, right view is what I'm talking about in terms of insight, viewing the world correctly. Right uh, meditation, though, is referring to this, and you should be doing this correctly. And there are, in, in Buddhism, uh, many times there are ways to do this incorrectly. You know, So when it says, yeah, right mindfulness, right concentration, it's referring to this process. In fact, when it says right concentration, it's actually samya samadhi, right samadhi, which is why I put concentration, because it's usually translated as concentration. But samadhi, again, is not just like, like concentrated awareness. It's transcendent bliss of some sort. Thank you. You may have talked about this before, but I don't remember um, sort of how it plays out. Were there Was there a notion that there were other people who were getting to, like, the state, like basically getting to nirvana and then just sort of like popping out, but not actually teaching other people what they had. Thank you. So, part of this uh, 
Buddhist program, this original Buddhist program, was if you do the shamatha, like the Buddha says, and if you do the mind insight training, vipassana, like he says, like he prescribed, there are these, or traditionally these four stages to becoming, um, well, the This is important to where I'm hoping to get this class tonight. So originally, the Buddha's organization, the Buddhist group, laid out this sort of hierarchy. And upon one's sort of first breakthrough into the possible truthfulness of the Dharma, of all of this, one becomes what's known as a stream enterer. You've sort of, like, you heard... Like, what are we going on? 20 minutes now. I just gave a 20-minute spiel on basic Buddhism. If that was, like, enticing to you, like, oh, you know, especially if you'd never heard it before, but you were like, oh, really? My, my attachment? My desire? That's the cause of all? Wow, that's, oh, that initial kind of, oh, like, view that this stuff might be true, then you are called a stream enterer. Um, there's other groups that say, no, stream enter is only when you've done like 40 hours of meditation and done, you know, there's different groups. But the idea is, is that initial decision to go against the stream, as it's called. So there is this idea, I've been kind of alluding to this notion of reincarnation, karma and reincarnation. And the idea here is, is that Well, the idea here is, is that there's a stream, a current, a metaphysical current of transmigra transmigration or reincarnation. And this is, just think of this a little more mythologically than metaphysically or physically. That there's this transmigratory flow that when beings die, a part of them, let's say, let's say a part of them sort of ejects into an ethereal realm and is sort of drawn back into this world and then ejected into a womb and birthed back into the world, only to forget everything that just happened, spend the next 20, 30 years trying to figure out what just happened, and then the next 20 or 30 years trying to make it a little better, die into the transmigratory river right back into this life, only to forget everything that just happened and go through it over and over and over again, right? So that's the river that keeps causing everybody to come back. And if you've sort of heard all of this and you've heard the Buddha spiel that says the reason why you come back is actually clinging in desire, we actually love it here. Even though it's causing us all this suffering, we're masochistic. And so we are attached to it and we keep coming back to it. The desire to not be in the flow and to go against the stream, as Buddhism says, that is to become a stream enterer. So you're entering the stream like prematurely, basically, 
before you have died, before the ejection of your consciousness, you're like, no, I'm going to get in the water now and actually try to go against the stream and get out of this whole situation altogether. So, again, if you've heard all that, you're in, boom, you're a stream enterer. There's an idea or a process. Again, Buddhism splits into different sects or groups based on this kind of hierarchy. When, do, when does this happen? How does this happen? You know, talk to your guru. But the idea is that at a certain point, you become known as a once-returner, which means you will, you've done enough good practice in this life that you, you will die, you will enter the transmigratory flow and come back to this world, but only one more time. You've done enough good work that the next time, the next time you'll do it for real all the way, right? But if you do even more meditation and even do more insight, you could become a non-returner, which means after this, you will eject out and basically either cruise around in the ethereal realm, you might visit a Buddha land or something, but you're never coming back here. But you could also go all the way and become what's known as an arhat. An arhat, a a worthy one, one worthy of offerings. Um, This, in the original school of Buddhism that I'm describing, in its original movement, this was the process and this was the goal, to become an arhat. And what it meant to be an arhat was that was it, that was the goal. The Buddha, enlightened God-being person, entity that he is, or whatever, came, hipped us all to this, and if you follow the prescriptions, go through the process, you could become an arhat. An arhat is in nirvana. So I want to make a, just quickly, there's nirvana, and there's pari. Nirvana. So let's talk about Nirvana real quick. Yeah. Okay. So the idea here is this. The word Nirvana, the root of it is Nirvan or Nibban in Pali. Nibban in Pali or Nirvan in, in Sanskrit means to blow out. Nirvana means blown out. Blown out like a candle flame. And the metaphor of the candle flame is the operating metaphor for nirvana. Meaning, this is the candle. This is the wax. All right? I don't know what the wick is. Whatever. (laughs) But the flame of the candle, right? The flame is, is desire. The flames of desire. Attachment, the wanting, the craving. That's the flame. And there's a classic metaphor that's used, not actually too much in Buddhism, but it's used a lot in the world of reincarnation and and things like that. And the metaphor is that here's a candle, and the candle is lit. Here's the flame, right? So, and here's you, and the candle flame represents your your, uh, jiva, your, your life force energy. Over here... There's a candle, but it's not lit. This is the little uh, baby or something like it that's in utero. And in Buddhism, there's a certain 
Again, they split up. Is this first trimester, second trimester, whatever. But there's the idea that there's a formation of a being that has material form, sensory organs, and all of that, but is sort of not conscious yet. And the idea of reincarnation, again, this is a classic metaphor, is that reincarnation is when this flame lights this flame. And the idea is, is like, well, this is my body. This is my body. There's some little baby that's going to be born. That's not my body. But the flame has been passed, and that is reincarnation. Even though that metaphor is not used a lot in Buddhism, it still works with this idea of the desire being passed to the next life form. You go. You be desirous, buddy. See if you can get what you want. I'm not, I wasn't able to get what I want. Like, good luck. So there's this transfer of it. So what Buddhism is, what this is all about, is in this lifetime going, and therefore there's no more passing it on. No more good luck, buddy. It's, that's nirvana. The flame of desire being put out. The idea here is is that we're all full of craving and desire. That's what he's saying. That's what Buddha's saying. We're all full of craving and desire, and it's causing us to just go running around this world mad, trying to satisfy it, which is impossible. And if we decided to not do that altogether, not crave and not cling and not want, we would, boom, that's nirvana. Now, the idea here, though, is that if I were to, right, quell my desires totally, I would be an arhat. If I were a non-returner, I still, like, there's a little flicker of the flame of desire a little bit that needs to be dealt with. Our hot, they're gone. But I'm still here, right? Body's still here. I'm still teaching Dharma. I'm still meditating. I'm still doing whatever. So the idea is, is that there is a last during my, you know, if I were to become an arhat, the, the next however many years of my life are a process of burning away the last bits of karma that are physical until I reach parinirvana. Totally gone. There's not any remainder. This is often called the nirvana without remainder. Gonzo, completo, toto. Everybody got, got it. But an arhat who is in nirvana and then finally reaches parinirvana, they're not a Buddha though. They're not an enlightened being. They are just done with craving. They've followed the program. They've quelled the desire. And then they're chilling until they die. And then they can be venerated. And people can take their, their little relic bones after they've been cremated and worship them. But that's it. They're gone. That's the idea. Are you ready for class to start? <laughs> you ready? Because we needed to know all this to know something important. So, I'm going to do some erasing. Yeah. What's, what's number four under samadhi? Neither perception nor non-perception. Neither nor. Okay. So here's what happened. This, this thing... Buddhism, with these crazy ideas and this, whoa, insight, wow, liberation, and all this stuff came on the scene. And basically around 250 BC, 
So within about 200, 250 years, Buddhism had spread pretty much uh, all over what is today India. It had become very big. Uh, there's a variety of historical reasons. We can get into why that is. Uh, one just little thing, for example, the Buddha gave his guys and gals, by the way, gals were right there at the beginning with the guys, right? Um, the guys and the gals of Buddhism, the Buddha gave them a uniform. He said, no, no, we all wear saffron robes and we all shave our head the first and the 14th, the new moon and the full moon. That's what we do. And there were very few other groups at the time that had a uniform, a, a real nice code of life. Like, oh, look, there go the Buddhists. They've shaved heads and yellow robes and bowls and they'll do, the, you know. So this codification of the way of Buddhist, of the Buddhist life, like just having shaved heads may have led to the spread of Buddhism more than the philosophy, the slick haircut. I'm just saying, if you, if, if you were... If you were an anthropologist looking at Buddhism, you would do wise to look at the haircut before the books uh, because it was a major part of it. You have to know that, the, that before the Buddha, the tradition was to grow long dreadlocks, uh, totally nude. That was like, if you're serious about this, you are not wearing clothes because you seriously have a major attachment to your ego if you have clothes on. So no clothes, let it go. The only bathing you do is ashes in the cemetery yard. And I'm serious. So these guys are naked, dreadlocked, big nails. They don't cut their nails. They don't cut their hair. Bathing in ashes from a cemetery. And then that guy comes to your door like, oh, can I have some food? And it's like, yo. Right? Yeah, like take a bath. So, uh, so anyways, there were some books that had been written about this shift that the Buddha came along. He's like, okay, everybody, guess what? I have bathing rituals for you. You're going to shave your head, first and 14th. You're going to wear clothes. You're going to do this. You're going to have manners. You're going to do this. You're not going to do this. You're not. And it worked. Apparently it worked. So Buddhism went along. And there was a revolution. This is what we're talking about tonight. A revolution that occurred in Buddhism probably sometime between 250 BC and 100 BC. So sometime in this frame... Something happened. A, a radical movement in Buddhism. We're talking a revolution that I, I often compare to the, the shift from the Newtonian worldview to the Einsteinian worldview, from like old school Newtonian physics to new school like quantum Einsteinian physics. That shift, which is, if you know the history of ideas, history of science, is major this shift was even more radical. I mean, this is like major turning of things on its head. And it also begins in Magadha. It is a continuous movement from what I outlined as the original teachings of Buddhism to this kind of new school Buddhism. This new school Buddhism could probably most easily be characterized as This, the Bodhisattva path. Bodhisattva path is different than the Arhat path. What happened was, is for, again, there's like, it's so complex of like why this may have happened. So many different 
directions you can go in trying to figure it out. But let it be known that something happened and there was a shift away from the ideal of becoming an arhat to the ideal of becoming a bodhisattva. Bodhi means enlightenment and a sattva is a being. And in, in Sanskrit, there can be all kinds of sattvas. We're, we're a sattva. We're a sattva of sentience. We're sentient sattvas. But there are these beings that are beings of enlightenment. Enlightenment beings. Bodhisattvas. And the bodhisattva path is very different than the arhat path <clears throat> because the goal of the bodhisattva path is to become a buddha, a fully enlightened being. In the bodhisattva path, they often refer to the arhat as a shravaka. <clears throat> shravaka means a voice hearer. And the critique is that they just sat there and listened to the Buddha. And were like, oh, oh. And then peacefully entered nirvana but they just heard what the Buddha said. Bodhisattvas are trying to be a Buddha. They are like trying to walk the walk, not just talk the talk, not just listen to the Buddha, they're trying to do it. And the Bodhisattva path is usually defined as having to do with the six paramitas. Translated usually as perfections. These are the six paramitas, <clears throat> so-called perfections. Um, I, I may get into what this word means. It doesn't mean perfection. It's translated as perfection. doesn't mean that. But they are practices. Let's just call them practices for now. They are practices of the bodhisattva. And really quickly, actually, the first three are key to understanding the difference between a bodhisattva and an arhat. The arhat walks the eightfold path. And if you think about right intention, you think about right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right concentration, right mindfulness. Uh, and I think I missed one. But if you think about the eightfold path, they are all have to do with the self. They all have to do with me towards me, me, working on me. And there's a critique that the Bodhisattva path has against this, that this is too self-centered. This is like a self-help movement gone wild. <clears throat> Giving is sometimes considered the most important. <clears throat> it's called, in Sanskrit, it's called dana. Dana, the Sanskrit word dana, is where we get the English word donor 
from and to donate, and all the words related to that, come from Sanskrit dana. And the Buddhists were sort of one of the first to really, the Bodhisattva path type Buddhism is the first to really be talking about giving or dana as a practice of meditation in Buddhism. And now it is called donation, and you make your annual donations and all of that. But the idea of doning, donating may have come from Buddhism. Like pure, like the very idea. Discipline, the bodhisattva path of discipline is very different than the discipline of the arhat. The arhat has 250 established rules that the Buddha laid out. You don't do this, you do do this, you wash your butt like this, you do that. I mean, we're talking down to how you shave your body, everything, there's a rule. And if you follow those rules, that's discipline, shila, for the arhat. Discipline, though, for the bodhisattva is, again, much more towards the other. And so, for example, discipline, one example of discipline of the bodhisattva and the whole bodhisattva path is uh, basically vegetarianism, like taking nonviolence to the point where you're not eating animals. The original Buddhist arhat path, animals, fine. If somebody put a ham hock in your begging bowl, you ate it. But when they put a turkey leg in there, you ate it. There was no problem with it. That was, it was given to you. That was the idea. You couldn't have anything killed for you. That was the deal. That was the line. That like if somebody was like, oh, I just slaughtered this cow for you. No, 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 no. But leftovers were fine. But in the bodhisattva path, discipline becomes explicitly vegetarianism, explicitly nonviolence to animals, plants, everything. So the discipline becomes much more explicitly about relationship with the outside world. Discipline or shila for the arhat was about how do I discipline myself? Ooh, I'll, I'll, ooh, I'll stand up straight, arms at my side, head back. Like it's all about me towards myself. And then patience, the way um, kashanti, patience, kashanti, the root of kashanti is shanti. If you've heard like om shanti, 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 shanti means peace. So kashanti, it's related to it etymologically. Patience. But in Buddhism, what patience or kashanti means for the bodhisattva is enduring um, uh, whatever's coming at you. Whatever's coming at you. The, the classic story in Buddhism is the time when the Buddha was trying to give this king a Dharma lesson and the king was so pissed off, he started chopping him up. The Buddha, like literally arm by arm. And all the while, the Buddha's just like, but I just want to teach you the Dharma. Like, no, but I just want to teach you. Like just pure patience towards the other doing bad things to them. So it's not just patience like, oh, I'm so patient. Like, oh, I'm at the, I'm at the, the bank and the line's so long, but I'm, I'm so patient. That's not it at all. It's a patience with the world, patience with the, all of that. Zeal or determination, virya, which I believe, sorry, virya. Virya, I believe, is where we get the English word virile from. Don't quote me on that one, because I'm still looking into that one, but I'm pretty sure we get virile from the Sanskrit virya. Determination, also sometimes just called zeal. Dhyana, meditation, calming. Pranya, wisdom. All right, we're close. 
So the Bodhisattva path is this radical <coughs> movement in Buddhism that happened where people were not satisfied with being part of some self-help uh, cult. I'm not joking. Like, literally, that was the idea. These Bodhisattvas were like, yo, this is a self-help cult, meaning it was self-helpy, too centered on the self, and too culty. Your hierarchy of once returner, non-returner, and if I make a big donation, all of a sudden I'm a non-returner? Anyway, so it was stuff like that. These guys were about really doing it. These bodhisattvas were, these were guys who were like, see ya, I'm going to go for several months into a cave by myself and meditate. So these were like hardcore people, men and women, that saw this as nonsense, and, and they had a new philosophical realization, which I'll talk about in a minute. But their practice was focused on these six perfections. The probably the most important being this prania or wisdom. And the perfection of wisdom is called prania paramita. Everybody follow me? Brought it around. All of these, all of these are prania paramita sutras. Sutras dealing with wisdom, but not just like smart stuff wisdom. Pranya as an idea unto itself. So let go of wisdom. It doesn't mean wisdom. It doesn't mean transcendent wisdom. It means pranya. Like it's an idea. And so I want to get into these a little bit to share with you some of the ideas of this. Yep. Just a quick question. Yeah. Do these words get into Sanskrit well, into English? Did they go through through Latin? Or through, Greek. through Greek. The Greeks got it all. And then the Greeks gave it to the Romans, and then the Romans gave it to us, basically. But, I mean, it's more complicated than that. But, yeah, Greece to Rome, Rome to Germanic, English, whatever, and then English. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, this, okay, so what I'm about to read to you is from this book. So this is where we start. The Ashta Hasarika Pranyaparamita Sutra, which is the so all of these are Pranyaparamita Sutras. This is a Pranyaparamita sorry, no, that's a collection. This is one Pranyaparamita Sutra. This is actually the Pranyaparamita Sutra in 25,000 lines. It's not even the longest. It's just the longest one I have in my library, right? So this one is the like a a big version of this sutra, the Buddha's teachings on wisdom. This one, though, is the 8,000-line version. Ed, Edward Konza, this guy, who is this uh, crazy translator, scholar guy, who made it his life's work to try to translate all the Pranyaparamita sutras into English. He didn't do it, but he made a dent. He believes, he, this guy, believes that the 8,000-line version, and actually just the first few chapters of the 8,000-line version, are the original heart of this whole movement. Like, that, that, there's a poem. By the way, all of these lines are, because these are all in verse. These are all poems, <clears throat> originally, in Sanskrit. And so he thinks that there was this small poem that got eventually elongated to 8,000 lines, 
but that this small little poem in here was the beginning of this whole movement. All right? So this is his version. It's, the translation is, he's an amazing translator, and if you're a scholar, there's nowhere else to go. This is a book called The Mother of the Buddhas. By the way, Pranya is considered the mother of the Buddhas. So Buddhas, enlightened beings, come of Pranya. This is a great book because it's a new translation of this. It's not the whole thing, though. It's just really choice chapters. And he does some interesting translation work. For me, knowing a lot of the original languages, I'm like, I see what you did there. And and it's like, yeah, it, it gets a feeling that a lot of the original gets, but it's a little misleading. So I'm going to try to you know, balance some of that. For example, of the where I'm going to start is an instant problem. Yeah, can I just ask one yeah of course, of course. So just in reference, are the, the 8,000 line that came from the 25,000? No. no. So the idea here is, is that if this was originally just, say, a few thousand lines, mm-hmm. and then it, people went crazy, and they're, oh, this thing's so great, and they tacked on a, a new beginning, oh, tacked okay. on, and got it up to 8,000 lines, then eventually they went totally wild. This is what a scholar will tell you. Okay, so these didn't come from, like, the novice. These didn't come from underwater. This isn't that, those... Oh okay, so here's the thing. Here <laughs> so is the am thing. I opening a like a... No, no, I'm glad you brought it up. So here's the thing. Buddhist sutras are are tricky. Buddhism is tricky. And there are many stories and ideas about where these things come from, where these sutras come from, all right? The, I used to have glasses. Are they? The iron, right? Um, So here's the thing. One way of understanding this is very simple. 500 BC, in around here, there was a guy named the Buddha, got enlightened, and for 45 years, nobody, nobody really doubts the, the chronology here, for 45 years, the guy went around India, mainly around here, and taught, and then he died. And one simple answer is that these are all records of the teachings of that guy. Period. Great. Now, there's a few problems with that, depending depending on how you feel. <clears throat> if you read these, they don't read anything like these, the old school sutras attributed to the Buddha. Those all read like, one time the Buddha was, was in this place, he was with 500, bunk, 500 monks, and he said this. In the large one, we have, you know, this, you know, this really long... A really long introduction that goes on for pages of just who was there. Not a simple little 500 monks. We're getting names and ah, da 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 da. But then what happens when the when the Buddha puts out his tongue and with it he covers the entire universe and many hundreds of thousands of millions of rays of light issued from his tongue. And from each one of the rays coming off of his tongue there arose lotus flowers made of the finest precious stones of golden color and with thousands of petals. And on those lotuses, there were seated and standing 
Buddha images demonstrating the Dharma. Do you follow that? <laughs> Buddha rolls out his tongue, light comes off the tongue, out of the light arises lotus flowers, and then on the lotus flowers are Buddhas, and by the way, those Buddhas are gonna start emitting light and tongues and oh my god. So if you're, you know, whatever, modern, western, academic at all, went to college, you would detect that this is not like other sutras. This is a wild story. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's the anther thing, actually. These are all these are all Sanskrit originally. This whole movement was in Sanskrit, if you will. It was a Sanskrit-based movement, and um, yeah. Sorry. So the sutra you did a few months ago with the sort of wisdom, the one that ended up in in uh, China and was did the translation for the. That's every one of them. <laughs> no, there's one guy who went through a whole story and how he went, went across and... The Lotus Sutra with Kumar Jiva yes. doesn't have anything to do with this. But it sounds, the wording sounds similar. A lot of it sounds similar. Okay, but really quickly, these are long, obviously 25,000 line, long epic poems in the tradition of the Mahabharata, the Ramayana. If you've read the Mahabharata or the Ramayana or the Bhagavad Gita or any of these classic Indian mega poems, they read like this. Crazy stuff happens, and it gets real like, whoa, 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 whoa. So this is sort of uh, that merger of that classic Indian epic poetry with Buddhist wisdom craziness, right? So I read you the beginning with the tongue and the light and all that. So these are not your average sutra. From this kind of cooler version of the 8,000 lines, the, where do, let's put it this way. Those bodhisattvas who stand courageously in perfect wisdom, in pranyaparamita, experience no identification with the noble stream-enterer who begins to flow as the stream of realization, nor with the noble once-returner who has only one more incarnation before achieving complete personal liberation nor with the noble never-returner, who will achieve complete personal liberation at the moment of his death, nor does the bodhisattva identify with or idolize even the sublime arhat, or Gnostic saint, who has already achieved complete personal liberation while living out his present lifetime. Those diamond beings, it's what this says. It's not a diamond, though, right? It's those vajra beings, who stand courageously in perfect wisdom, do not identify with any idea, statement, or doctrine from common experience or from any philosophical or religious framework, beginning with the conventional assumption that the world consists of material objects, all the way up to the exalted teaching that the world consists only of Buddha nature. Bodhisattva doesn't do any of that, either of those, right? The bodhisattva is not rooted focused in or established in any philosophical analysis, either Buddhist or non-Buddhist, which concludes that the principle or form is... Sorry, let me end it there. I don't want to confuse you with too much. The Bodhisattva does not identify truth with the assertion that the process of form constitutes suffering. That's the first noble truth, by the way. Or that they constitute happiness. That the processes of form 
are not the self or that they are the self. <clears throat> it could go on. There's other things I want to read, and it's a little late. So the idea here is, is that this practice of being a bodhisattva is very different than this original prescription. And it's focused on this idea of pranya. But I want to point out my initial, starting the class with this initial description of Buddhism. What is Buddhism? It's about calming down and insight. Calming down is the meditation. Insight is this way of seeing the world. And in Buddhism, how we see the world is of the utmost importance. All right? And so what I'm getting at is when the Bodhisattva path says, ah, pranya, let's understand the, how this world's working, we're still doing Buddhism. We've just gone deeper with what the Buddha initially taught. All right? And by the way, this pranya was always there. It was always the goal of insight meditation. Still is the goal of insight meditation and is always the goal in Mahayana is this pranya, this wisdom. Okay. Here was the big part, though. <clears throat> so Edward Konza thinks the 8,000-line version was the original. He's a good scholar. He's probably right. However, there's this version of the Pranya Paramita Sutra that's called the Vajra Chedika. Vajracharika or Vajracharika Pranyaparamita Sutra. Usually, almost always translated as the Diamond Sutra. The Diamond Sutra, which is this little guy, also Pranyaparamita Sutra, also considered a fundamental Pranya Sutra, and by some, including myself, considered the, the first Pranya Paramita Sutra. I'm not in the 8,000 line camp. I'm in this one was the original one. But before I do that, I need to finish a thought. One way of understanding all of this is that it all came out of the Buddha's mouth in his lifetime. Easy. But again, if you're a scholar, it doesn't seem that way. These look like literature... These, these look like they're aware of old school Buddhism, right? So that's where it's like, well, this couldn't, why would the Buddha have been critiquing people following? Like, it doesn't make sense, but it does, but it doesn't. There's a second answer to where all of this came from, and that's what Jenny alluded to. There was a philosopher that lived sometime between 100 BC and 180 named Nagarjuna, Nagarjuna is considered the wisest Buddhist after the Buddha. Like, there's the Buddha, and then there's Nagarjuna. Look, Nagarjuna was a man of flesh and blood. He was a teacher at a university in Nalanda, which was a place right around here. Um, he wrote many commentaries on the Pranyaparamita Sutras. He kind of founded a school of Buddhism on the Pranyaparamita Sutras. Um, 
the story is, is that Nagarjuna was an arhat. Nagarjuna was a old school, classically trained Buddhist monk. He taught at a university here. And the story that I won't go into great length, but the story is, is that he got led to a magical lake and he went into the lake where he discovered a magical underwater world where there were shape-shifting lizard people called Nagas, and they had stored all of these sutras that, yeah, the Buddha spoke in his lifetime, but they had been kept secret in the water until Nagarjuna found them and brought them to the world, and then they were ready for him. So that's your second option. So one, one man said all of this in his lifetime. Maybe possibly. I don't know. Second one, a philosopher monk from around this time period dove into a lake, magic lake, and found them all. Right? Joseph Smith. That's the Joseph Smith, magic goggle version. Absolutely. Oh, wait. In that version, who put them there? In that version, very quickly, the Nagas, which are the shape-shifting certain people, the king of the Nagas is a guy named Muchilinda. Muchilinda looks like a cobra, but has seven heads. And you may one day see the image of a Buddha meditating on a snake, and the snake has his giant hood. That's a moment in the life of the Buddha when he had just gotten enlightened. The earth was shaking, quaking, and it started to hail because it was such like a miraculous event. And the Buddha was sitting there just like totally enlightened, beaming light, but getting pelted by hail. (laughs) Muchi Linda, the king of the Nagas, sees the Buddha, becomes overwhelmingly compassionate towards this enlightened being, curls under him, covers him from the hail, for which the Buddha was like, oh, yo, and one time I unrolled my tongue and light came out of the tongue. And then all... <laughs> so supposedly Muchilinda heard all these sutras and it's his underwater world where he kept them and then taught them to Nagarjuna who brought them back to the world of men. So they're still the Buddha's words. But kept, even in that version. kept hidden for a while. Okay. And then the third version is the kind of the version as a historian and scholar that I'm telling you which was Buddhism went on along for about 200 and 250 years and then eventually suffered some sort of institutional crisis where it had become so hierarchical, institutional, uh, and um, patriarchal, all kinds of problems, that a movement started of like, let's get back to the real Buddhism. Let's be Buddhas. Like, you know, forget the Arhat. Let's do this. And so that started this movement And that movement is founded on this idea of the bodhisattva aiming for wisdom. And what is wisdom? Wisdom is what is traditionally, normally called this concept of emptiness. Understanding emptiness is wisdom, makes you a bodhisattva, and puts you in that non-dual place that this was talking about, where the bodhisattva has no interest in in in. Wanting to be that, wanting to be that. In fact, the Bodhisattva is practicing for real that Buddhist prescription of non-attachment. Seriously. This little diamond sutra, the crux of this, the crux of this little sutra is a monk, actually an arhat, an old school Buddhist named Shibuti, asking the Buddha, 
hey, Buddha, but what if people wanted to be a Buddha? I'm paraphrasing. He, he, literally says, he literally says, if good men and good women wanted to develop the mind of Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi, how would you say they should train their minds? What is Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi? Da, da, da. He's asking them, but what if I wanted to be a Buddha? What if I didn't want to just be an Arhat? What if I wanted to go like supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment? Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi. That's what the Bodhisattvas are after. And the Buddha says, wow, like that's, it's great that you should ask that. Well, I'll tell you. Buddha told Shibuti, all bodhisattvas bodhisattva should master or train their minds like this. Think of it this way. All kinds of sentient beings, whether they're born out of an egg, from a womb, out of moisture, just straight up metamorphosis, whether they have bodily form or they're like ghosts without bodily form, whether they have perception or they're without perception or there's some exalted monk in the state of neither perception nor not perception, well, let's just say I, the Buddha, caused them all to enter the nirvana without remainder, liberating them. Thus, by liberating immeasurable, incalculable, illimitable sentient beings, in reality, Shibuti, there are no sentient beings who attain liberation. That line of the Diamond Sutra is what I believe to be the little nugget that was left over from old school Buddhism where somebody got a hold of this and was like, yo, did you guys see where the Buddha said there's no sentient beings? Did you see that part? That begins the whole thing. So this whole sutra expounds upon that, but I'm going to dive into this crazy guy. So this is the Maharatnakuta Sutta, that, or sutra that we did the Sword of Wisdom from. This is actually a collection of sutras, like many small sutras. And there's one in here called... Uh, Manjushri's discourse on the paramita of wisdom. Manjushri is the bodhisattva of wisdom. There's all kinds of bodhisattvas that the, this tradition kind of reveres. So here he says, da, da, da. Um, by the way, this is going to be a lot later than the Diamond Sutra I just read from you, read to you from. And, so, and some of you took my, my Diamond Sutra class, so you'll find this interesting. Much later sutra, in which the Bodhisattva Manjushri says to, uh, the, uh, to a monk who was talking to him, um, da, 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 da. yes, indeed, what you say is true. The, the monk paid him a compliment. It's very rare for someone to don the great dormants of a Bodhisattva for the sake of all sentient beings without ever having the notion of sentient beings in his mind. The realm of sentient beings neither increases nor decreases in spite of his donning the great adornments, these great adornments for all sentient beings. Suppose one Buddha dwells in a world for a kalpa, an eon, or more, and suppose an infinite number of such Buddhas, as innumerable as the sands of the Ganges River, succeeded one another in dwelling in that Buddha land, each for a kalpa, or more, to teach the Dharma day and night without interruption, and to ferry over to Nirvana sentient beings as innumerable as the sands of the Ganges. And still, the realm of sentient beings will neither increase nor decrease. It is also true that if the Buddhas in all the Buddha lands in the ten directions teach the Dharma, and each ferries over to Nirvana sentient beings as innumerable as the sands of the Ganges River, the realm of sentient beings will still neither increase 
nor decrease. And why? Because sentient beings are devoid of any definitive entity or form. Therefore, the realm of sentient beings neither increases nor decreases. Questions? Can you read that very last phrase again? Mm -hmm. Okay. Why? Because sentient beings are devoid of any definitive entity or form. Therefore, the realm of sentient beings neither increases nor decreases. Yes, exactly. Okay. Where'd you come from? <laughs> <laughs> well, what, this thing about natural <coughs> and beings, mm -hmm. and therefore they neither increase nor decrease, there is this... <laughs> well, that we're, not, that, we're not, that we're not really what we think, that we are myself or me or mine. It doesn't really exist. It was neurologically explained in a course that I took with Rick Hansen, uh -huh. but I couldn't explain it to you. <laughs> it's tricky. It's tricky. So you nailed it, though. So something I didn't mention, but I kind of, again, assumed if you've all studied Buddhism, you sort of knew. Um, if we go back to this original Buddhist program, calming down and insight. I kind of focused on the Four Noble Truths as having insight into this world, right? But there's a, another part of that, which is this point I'll just hit play and walk out. So here, here we go again. So part of the original Buddhist program was this realization of an-atman, which is to say no atman. An is a prefix that says no atman. And an atman is basically like a soul, an essence, a self. And I, you know, I spend every Sunday night with this idea about how the Buddha came along to a group of people who believed very much in an essential self, what we might call a soul, an essence, or just the self, because we're going to get to know self. So we can also think of Atman as the self. And it's one of those things where we all have it. We all have this notion of the self. And if you haven't heard my description of the self, here's the description of the self. The self is the notion that from the time I was born and went to elementary school and then middle school and then high school and college and then got married, the idea is that through that process, 
from the time I was this tall with platinum blonde hair till now when I have gray hair, the idea is, is that there has been between the ears and behind my eyes stuffed in there somehow a little pilot who has been experiencing my life. That's a self, okay, just so we're clear. And so that we're clear that we all have this, right? Again, bodhisattvas in the room excluded. The idea is that we all have the notion that that was me, my little lunch pail going to school. That was me, my first love in high school. That was me, that was me. And notions of what I'm going to do tonight, what I'm going to do next week, what I'm going to do next year, what I'm going to do. We have the notion of the self, the experiencer of my life, right? Just so we're clear, this is not some old idea from 2000 BC or whatever. This is like we still have this. And not only do we still have the idea of the self, the pilot, the experiencer. So not only do we have that idea, we have the idea of the essential me. So one me is the me that holds all this together, right? Even though that didn't look like me, it's a lot smaller, it's me still. We're holding all this together as me, right? So that's this idea of a self. And then this goal of, but who am I really? What is, like, what's, and I often say that, you know, back in the day, they were looking for the Atman, the Atman was that little speck of divine something, the, the something, right? That, uh, by the way, that for the people of India, the Atman, it was the thing that kept going around and around. That even though it's in this body, it would then, the Atman will go become a dog or become, I don't know what, but it'll just keep going around. But it's the Atman that's the essential self. In Christianity, it was the soul. So it was like, yeah, you know, the body, but then the soul, Right? I often remark that nowadays Western culture, modern Western culture, it's DNA. That's, oh, I want to get down to the essential, like the real me, ah, 23 and me, that's it, I got it, right? So this search, not just the belief, the holding on to the notion of the self, but also the belief in an essential self, or at least the pursuit for the essential self. Because we're still looking. Everybody's still looking. That's the thing, right? So, everybody was looking for the real self and looking to understand the self. Mainly in order to figure out how to navigate the Atman into either a better rebirth or how to not navigate the Atman into a state of divine, divine bliss with the totality of all things. Or something like that. But people were searching and looking in and looking out and doing meditation. And the Buddha came along and shattered everything when he said, Oh, there just is no Atman. That the pilot that I believed was the experiencer of my life, it, there isn't, that it doesn't exist. It's a grand illusion of continuity. But there actually isn't an essential self. What there is, right here before you, right now, is the momentary coalescence of 
material form or matter, rupa it's called, and this rupa consists of these organs, eyeballs, right, made of flesh, ears, made of flesh, tongue, made of flesh, body, made of flesh, nose, made of flesh, those organs that are made of flesh come into contact with other stuff made of matter, and the contact between them causes sensations, vigana. And you have been trained to divide the world up into things with names, delineated things with names, meaning this is the bowl and these are the books, right? I got this over here and this over here. But that process of dividing the world up into things with names is what in Buddhism they call samya. And you learn to do this. You learn to do this from where, as soon as possible. Mom's like, bowl, bowl. And trying to get you to delineate and name things. Conditioning or samskara. This is the uh, accumulation of kind of like instinctual emotional reactions to things, conditioning, and then consciousness, vijnana. And here's the thing about it. All, so this is the momentary coalescence of a bunch of matter having sensations filtered through a process of perception, filtered through the channels of my conditioned mind, and that is causing this consciousness experience to happen. And that consciousness experience happening cannot believe that this is it and begins to cling to notions of the past and notions of the future, delineated notions of the self and other, labels of the name, occupation, I'm a teacher, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, all that, right? But underneath all of that label, all of that stuff, is actually these five distinct things, momentary coalescing together, but the most important thing from a Buddhist perspective is that let's take your bodily form. When that first day in elementary school with your little lunch pail, that, that bodily form, that matter, is not what you're made out of. All those cells have died, gone down the drain, and been replaced numerous, numerous times over. Again, all my hair has fallen out and I've gotten new gray hair through that whole process. So in terms of the physicality, there's nothing there that's here now, all right? So the form is constantly changing. Oh, there goes another cell, there goes another hair, right? There goes another tooth, whatever. So the form is constantly changing, right? Depending on whether the air conditioning is on, off, we go inside, outside, our sensations will change moment to moment. So at no point are we having the same sensations, Depending on our experiences, our perceptions change because I'm perceiving this now, but I'm going to go outside and perceive a whole new thing. Start chopping that up. So my perceptions are always changing. Conditioning changes. I've changed your conditioning tonight, hopefully giving you a whole, a whole new little feeling about Buddhism. Just a little one, right? Just a little slight shift in your conditioning relationship to Buddhism. And then, of course, consciousness is changing moment to moment to moment. 
every single thought you're having is a new thought. So all five of these are constantly changing. There's not, it's never the same form, sensation, perception, conditioning, or consciousness to be there. So there's nothing there. And there's no oneness. There's no unity. The, the notion of, hi, my name is Michael. It seems so simple. One name, one being, right? Right? Whoa. So that, what was that? No. Exactly. So what's happening here is, is, so the Buddha calls these the five skandhas of clinging. And yes, yes, there's the clinging involved. But the nature of these five skandhas is to do this. And I'm talking about our bodily organs not spilling out everywhere. The whole thing clings to itself. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's like it clings. Otherwise, we would fall apart. So it's clinging. But the thing is, is it keeps clinging and keeps clinging and keeps clinging. And basically, we're at a point, we're at like a fever pitch of clinging where we look at everybody like, whoa, like, what do you want from me? And like, because I'm clinging here, buddy. So the idea is we're so worked up because we're clinging. And it's a natural process to do that. That's what I'm getting at. Buddhism is like, yeah, this is natural. The skandhas cling, and that's how you don't fall apart. But the thing is, is they keep clinging and keep clinging and keep clinging. And so you have to practice and work at not allowing that to happen. You have to go against the stream of that. And the, the Buddha, Buddhism, is giving you all these techniques, eightfold paths, six perfections, whatever you want, to not do it, to not cling. So is the goal to ultimately kill the ego? Not in this school. In this school, how would I... A better way to put it is not killing the ego, but realizing that ego never existed to begin with. That way there's no violence, it's just wisdom. Does that make sense? That way there's no, there's no violence. There's only wisdom. Because the idea of killing the ego is a little, it's a little rough. Okay, okay. Right? Why do we, why so you didn't exist in the first place. So they ain't nothing to kill. So just an illusion. Yeah, yeah. But it's a persistent illusion that controls our lives. And there's a way in which it's real as long as it's real. This is a very Buddhist perspective on things, which is that experience is very real. In fact, from this school of Buddhism, experience is all that's real. And that's very serious because it means that, let's just take a kind of a funny example, but the idea is that if one has a, quote, hallucination, that there's a pink elephant here, it's not that there's not a pink elephant here. Because I'm having the experience of there being a pink elephant here. Just like I'm having the experience of there being a room full of people here. This is an illusion. This is a trick of the mind, cutting the world up into a whole bunch of things. We're way, it's way too late to go further with this. <clears throat> But I did want to share one, one beautiful sentence. 
Well, actually, a couple sentences. So a few more just choice descriptions of wisdom and its perfection. A few more descriptions of pranya paramita, right? Um, so still on this question of sentient beings, this is the Buddha asking the Bodhisattva Manjushri. But the, you know, the Buddha asks these questions, but he already knows the answer. So he says, so then, so, he's, so Manjushri's just dropped all this business about the sentient beings not existing. So the Buddha asks, does the realm of sentient beings abide anywhere? Meaning, so then, is there a realm of sentient beings anywhere? Like, Manjushri answered, sentient beings abide nowhere, just like space. And the Buddha asked Manjushri, if so, how should one abide in the paramita of wisdom when cultivating it? Manjushri answered, abiding in no dharma is abiding in the paramita of wisdom. By the way, in that sense, dharma means a truth or a teaching. So resting on no truth, that is abiding in the paramita of wisdom. Very, very tricky idea there. The Buddha asked for a magistrate further. Why is abiding in no dharma called abiding in the, in the paramita of wisdom? Right? It's like, thanks, Buddha, because I had the same question. <laughs> right? It's literally, I love sutras because they always do that. Every time I have a question, somebody says, but wait. The magistrate answered, because to have no notion of abiding is to abide in the paramita of wisdom. Whoa, we're starting to see it now, right? The Buddha asked Manjushri further, if one thus abides in the paramita of wisdom, will his... Oh, then it gets too crazy. It goes off on a whole other thing. But there's another beautiful line here just to give you... Um, the Buddha asked Manjushri, to how many Buddhas have you given offerings? And the idea of Manjushri here is that he is like a non-corporal being that travels through space and time and visits Buddhas and all kinds of stuff. It's a whole uh, mythology, if you will, about upper-level bodhisattvas. So how many Buddhas have you given offerings to? Manjushri answered, The Buddhas and I are all illusory. I see neither a giver nor a receiver of offerings. The Buddha asked Manjushri, are you not now abiding in the Buddha vehicle? Meaning, like, aren't you now practicing Buddhism? Manjushri answered, as I think about it, I do not see a single dharma. How could I abide in the Buddha vehicle? The Buddha asked Manjushri, have you not attained the Buddha vehicle? Meaning, like, haven't you then mastered Buddhism then? If you're saying you don't do it, then you've mastered it, right? Manjushri, have you not attained the Buddha vehicle? Manjushri said, the so-called Buddha vehicle is only a name. It cannot be attained or perceived. If so, how can I attain anything? The Buddha asked Manjushri, have you obtained the, have you attained the samadhi of unobstructed wisdom? Manjushri answered, I am unobstructed wisdom. How can the unobstructed attain the unobstructed? Love it. I mean, if you don't love that. I... <laughs> but one more. One more. One more. Da, 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 da. So this... 
All right, one, one more. Do, do, do. So, magistrate, this is a whole thing that comes before this, but he says, as to the reality of the view of a self. So the view of a self is what I just described, the pilot, right? So the reality of the view of the pilot of my life, right? The reality of the view of the self, it is neither real nor unreal. It neither comes nor goes, is both self and non-self. Hence, it is called reality. Manjushri said to the Buddha, one who is not afraid, horrified, confused, or regretful at hearing this profound paramita of wisdom sees the Buddha. Then Shariputra said to the Buddha, world honor one, the paramita of wisdom spoken by Manjushri is beyond the comprehension of novice bodhisattvas. Manjushri said, it is incomprehensible not only to novice bodhisattvas, but also to shravakas, the voice hearers, also to pratekya bhuttas, which are solitary enlightened beings, beings that just go off in the woods and figure stuff out. So, uh, da, da, da. so it is incomprehensible not only to novice bodhisattvas, but also to arhats, shravakas, pratekya buddhas, self-enlightened buddhas, who have already done what they set out to do. No one can comprehend a teaching like this. I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> so, okay. Please. Um, oh, um, I'm not sure if I articulate this too well, but so if the illusion, if the self is an illusion, then and you're trying to strip all the stuff to get rid of the illusion, mm -hmm. then the thing that's trying to strip all the stuff, the illusion, is that just another illusion too? Meaning? Please. Meaning what? Just meaning that um, if. If the little controller doesn't exist, and yet in order to get rid of that, get rid of the illusion, you have to control something, then is that not another layer of an illusion? Mm. Uh, okay. Is that, sorry. No, 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 sorry. It's an amazing question. Um, it's a very profound question that gets asked by... Uh, very enlightened monks in sutras that what you're getting at and it's, please well I was just going to say it seems like it's really just a way of understanding for people who aren't enlightened when you're not enlightened so it's, it's more of a frame of, of something to grasp onto so that when you get to that place then it's not necessary I, it's like this, or this is a way to think of it. Yeah. This is a way to think of it. So there is this... These words are tricky, right? Delusion or illusion. Whatever, I, I can't be too careful right now. So this illusion of the self, which is this experiencer of my life. that I'm, I know, I'm, I got pictures to prove it, right? So <laughs> this... That notion is a clinging, right? And it's a clinging to the self, not just like literally in, in like literally right now I'm clinging to myself, but I can also like cling to this self in terms of like, you know, I shaved yesterday and I'm like, oh, did I shave too short? 
So now I'm clinging to my notion of myself, right? Then there's this clinging to the self in its elongated form, right? The, the, this, my life and all of that. And the idea here is, is that all of that is an illusion being brought about by clinging, right? So w- what is the self? The self is the clinger, the Klingon, right? That's the, the idea of the self, right? What Buddhism is all about, what everything I've talked about tonight is so simple because what it's about is, is this process of non-attachment, not desiring. and that, So it's either literally letting go of the object, literally letting go of it. Uh, the next step is letting go of the notion of ownership, subtle, right? Because I could not be literally clinging to it, but if I believe I own it, that's a heavy clinging, right? Because then if somebody takes it, it's like, oh, my bowl or any of that. So the idea is like, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to like literally cling to it, but now I'm like not even going to cling to it as mine. <coughs> then I'm going to start getting crazy and not cling to it as a bowl. Like I'm going to start like stop clinging to notions, ideas, and labels, and I'm going to just keep not clinging, keep not clinging, keep not clinging. And that process of doing that, of, of not doing anything, Buddhism says leads to an exalted state of liberation that could go one of a few ways, either towards arhatship or bodhisattvahood or Buddhahood or whatever. So what I'm getting at is that it's a getting out of the way. So there is nobody doing your question. You know, I can't remember the exact wording, but there is nobody trying to be enlightened. There's actually somebody trying to be. There's somebody trying and clinging and doing all of that. And enlightenment, bodhisattvahood, Buddhahood, is the not, not doing that. Not doing that. I often use this, uh, it's a Buddhist parable about a man who's lost in the woods. And it's a, a, a new moon night, and so he, there's no light. Uh, he doesn't have a compass, there's no star in the sky. It's, it's foggy, so he doesn't know north, south, east, from west. Totally lost. The parable says that the moment the man doesn't care where he's going, he's no longer lost. Meaning that getting saved, sorry, pardon, but lost and found, or lost and saved, being saved or being found is not a process of obtaining some information you don't have, not a process of doing a activity that you don't know about, but if you cross your legs this way, it's actually like stopping, it's like ceasing being lost. It's just, oh, I, I don't care where I'm going. Lost is only relative to desire of wanting to be somewhere and not being able to get there. The minute you're cool with where you're at, totally cool with where you're at. And I mean, totally cool with where you're at. I mean, you don't want to leave. You don't, you're feeling nice, solid. You don't want for anything. You don't crave or desire anything. That's liberation. And again, it's the easiest thing you could do. It's actually not doing anything. How funny is that? So not really wanting to be in control of because you... That's what's it's causing like, it. It's like letting go and renunciation. Like yep. And asking yourself, what is really at risk in doing that? 
Because the self can come up with a thousand reasons why it's dangerous to do that. But really ask yourself, what's at risk? Like by not getting worked up about things. (laughs) What's at risk about not being anxious about things? (laughs) What do you stand to lose? (laughs) Right? What is the worst that could happen? And again, or not again, I should say this tonight for the first time, you know, we're talking about a view of wisdom here. This is not laziness. It's not like, oh yeah, Michael said there's no such thing as sentient beings. Ha ha. Like, (laughs) no, 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 no. This is all only through wisdom, through the wisdom eye, are there no such things as sentient beings? Is there nothing to get worked up about? Is there nothing to be concerned about only through wisdom because I'm not saying there's not things to be concerned about don't hear it wrong don't get it twisted in any way I just mean about those things that we're attached to and clinging to that are causing us anxiety or even like the ownership thing isn't it just a beautiful bowl without me owning it can't it just be a bowl without it or can't it just be without it being a bowl even all of those things Yeah, okay. Um, is it useful or accurate to think of that? So there isn't a self that decided to come here, but it's like a, is it, it's like a causal chain of those coalescences. It's like, like if, if all I am in any moment is the coalescence of those five things, then a moment ago I was a different coalescence of those five things, and a moment before that I was a different coalescence, and they just sort of like overlap and become one another in the way that like rainbow colors I think of it. I think it more the the billiard table bumping, causing, 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 that causing. Works. Yeah. But that's yeah. just my metaphor, yeah. Yeah. But rainbow be. bleed is nice too. And so then you don't, you don't. There's just it's just a matter of whether we want to want there to be overlap or not. Of course. Um, and then there you don't need a self. There's just like if I just traced it, and time doesn't exist. I know, but like if I just trace it backwards far enough, there'd be. So two ideas real quick. One that comes to mind is the notion that the bodhisattva, who by definition has relinquished the notion of self. That's sort of a bodhisattva standard. That's what makes a bodhisattva a bodhisattva. They're working towards that no-self position, right? So I was, there was a few different things, and then I got all confused. <laughs> I was like, I, hold on to that one. But, um, I'm sorry. I lost it. It's okay. Yeah. I'm asking because then you don't need a self. If it's a causal chain. Yeah, I mean. Aggregates, then you don't need a self. Yeah, with this bumping. So the thing I was going to say before, the thing I forgot, was there's this saying, and it's not, it's only helpful in a feeling. It's not helpful in an intellectual way. So the, the thing is, there's this saying in, in, in Buddhism, but other traditions too. If you want to understand your past, look at where you are right now. And if you want to understand your future, look at what you're doing right now. Meaning that this is the culmination 
of all your past decisions, literally. And where you're going is all based on what you do right now. Your future is yours, right? It's, you know, wow, liberated. You have your future wide open in that regard. So, that, ah, 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 ah. So, the idea is this. So, the Bodhisattva, by definition, is this one who has no self, right? But they're still deeply compassionate beings, by definition. And the view of the Bodhisattva would be something like this. I will not drink myself to psoriasis of the liver out of compassion for the future being that might call itself Michael. Does that make sense? So there's a way in which there's still compassion, there's still notions of self in a way, but the Bodhisattva, who understands there's no self, is still going to be compassionate towards what it knows is coming. There's no reason to destroy the liver just because there's no self. So if, if that makes sense. So that's the billiard ball, skandhas, bumping each other into existence. This skandha is, knows that it is bumping a new version of me into existence that will be me. I'm going to be home tonight in the tub, chilling. I, like, I'm moving towards that. I know I'm moving towards that through these actions, meaning I'm going to wrap it up, get in the car, and so it'll happen. But there's a way in which that can all be done free of the clinging of the notion of the self. Control all the things that are going to come up. That's part of the idea of Buddhism, is to let go of the notion that you have any control to begin with. So then Bodhisattva, they don't, is then there's no concept of once returned, or there's just infinite returners? That's why I read that part about the Bodhisattva doesn't have anything to do with those, because that's, that's all people coming back. Bodhisattvas are, they're so, their ideas, they're beyond that notion. Again, haven't, they haven't killed it. Beyond it, they woke up. Well, oh, there wasn't a pilot to begin with. But I see where that came from. Like, I see where that notion of the self came from. I see how pictures reinforce that. I see how my name reinforces that. I see how this is all working. That's called insight. When you say, oh, I see how this is working. It's still happening. I'm still suffering. I still have anxiety and stress. But through my personal Buddhist study, I have a clear idea of what's causing it, which gives me a better chance at stopping it. That's the Dharma. All right, thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you.